And when you talk about education reform, you're talking about reform in-house, reform in the community outside of the formal system, and reform on the periphery, like self-organised learning, like education exclusion um, initiatives, which are going on at the moment, like homeschooling, for example. And today, we're going to really concentrate on reform from the inside, what you can do from that. Because lots of people think, you know, they, they dismiss the inside and say, look, you know, we've got to have reform, root and branch, outside, we've got to start anew. But what we want to talk at this particular meeting is, can we reform from the outside? Can, be, can we be innovative on the inside? Anyhow, I'm not going to say any more. Evan's going to chair the panel uh, uh, presentations, and then I'm going to take over and take the questions from you with my role in mind. So um, wait for the mic when I do that, because we're recording it, I think, and you won't be on the recording if you don't have the mic. Anyhow, Evan, over to you, and thank you for the two speakers yeah. for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Francis. I'll speak loud, so I hope everyone can hear me okay. Um, just to provide a little bit of context, uh, we're interested in transforming education rather than reform. A lot of people are interested now in reform. We're interested in transforming. We want to change the nature, uh, and we want to change the system. So it's a massive undertaking that we have for sure. Um, and it's needed because, uh, as someone said very recently, education succumbed to the superficial. It's in this, published a couple of days ago. The person who said it is in the audience, Chris Ormel, who runs the Per Group, Philosophy for Education Renewal. They've been working for 25 years, uh, and they've done a very incisive analysis of what's gone wrong with their present system. It's, it's well worth, the sort of stuff that they produce, I tell you, is, is, is well worth reading. Um, the, uh, the exam system is certainly not least amongst the problems, but we will hear uh, more about that later. Um, I, I guess the, uh, the modern guru uh, in this area of transforming education is a colleague of mine, Sir Ken Robinson. He's a colleague in a sense with both emeritus professors from the University of Warren. I don't know him personally, but we hope to get him here and be involved in this series of events at some stage. Uh, he can certainly talk the talk uh, and write the books. I don't know whether you've seen the TED talk, it's the most watched TED talk in there. It's good because he's got a lot of humour in it, and that's what you almost must do when you, when you tell a story. I'm sorry that I won't have too much humour today, but this is what one should normally do. Uh, but he hasn't got much movement, really hasn't got much people to start thinking differently about education. Um, and there's a lot of resistance to that, uh, for sure. Uh, and we by no means underestimate the big job that's got to be done. Uh, the problem is, is that education is deep-rooted in our capitalistic structure. They're born uh, round about the same time at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, they, indeed, some say, they're both industrialised processes. Now, um, we are now in the digital age. We're not in the industrial age, we moved on. And so, in the end, uh, Education and ultimately capitalism has to move on. Um, 
Today we thought to kick this series of meetings off, uh, we're going to have what amounts to a head-to-head. Um, we're going to have our first speaker, which is Professor David Scott here from UCL Institute of Education, has all his professional life been worrying and studying and researching education. And he's written extensively on that. I think there's three books coming out this year, I believe. Um, he's going to talk about essentially what education, modern education, should be, from start to finish. And uh, as a bit of a retort, we've got Robin <coughs> Street, deeply involved in the present education system. Uh, he's co-principal of a very swanky new school called UCL, appropriately, Academy, very close to where I live, just up the road from here. Uh, he, I understand from everything I've read about the school, that they maintain that they can provide a more holistic approach to educating the child than what is normal. And of course, we're very interested to know how his school and how Robin does that. So it gives me very great pleasure to, uh, indeed, uh, excitement to uh, welcome uh, the two speakers uh, to Conway Hall today. Um, Conway Hall houses the old, world's oldest free-thinking society. And I, of course, uh, invite both uh, David and Robin to speak accordingly. So David's going to speak first for about 15 minutes, and then over to uh, Robin. And then we're going to open it to the floor. Have I forgotten anything, by the way? No? Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Um, there's, a, there's a very pompous title, really, in the, attached to my name. The idea of a, a manifesto. Um, I suppose, really, what I want to present you with is a few ideas about education. And I start from a particular perspective. And that is, firstly, that conspicuously absent from any debate about education in the broadcast, print, and social media, academia, and policy-making bodies is a genuine political left, centrist, or even liberal agenda about education. So I start, if you like, from that position. Um, and what I want to suggest is just some ideas that might fill it up, if you like. I see education over the last 30 years as a disaster, quite seriously as a disaster, as we've sought uh, more and more uh, a push or a rush towards an exam-based society, an exam-based system, and so forth. So what I want to do is to suggest some ways of moving outside that narrow frame of reference. And we're talking about education, and I think Education deserves, above any other topic, any other subject, deserves something that is serious, deserves a serious reflection on what it is. And I don't think that what we have at the moment is a very serious reflection about a holistic view of education. Since uh, 1988, um, which I suppose is the year when the old and new blueprints for education in the United Kingdom crossed over. 
there has been this consensus then amongst the political parties. Now, some of you might find this, that statement, if you like, slightly uncomfortable, but certainly I don't see much difference between the Labour governments of, 19, of 97 to 2000, 2010 and the Conservative and coalition governments 2010 to the present day. Um, I do think that they, are sh they share some fundamental principles about education, which I, of course, don't share. Um, so there is a consensus about the type of cur curriculum taught in schools. You will hear, of course, conservative politicians at the present time saying that we have taken over from Labour in 2010. They made a mess of education. They made a mess, of course, of everything else as well. But they made a mess of education. We are putting it right. Michael Gove, for example, who's been in the news recently, but not, not to do with education, has reiterated this line continuously for the last five, six years. So I think there's a consensus. I think it's the wrong consensus. But it's a consensus about curriculum, testing and assessment, the breadth of the curriculum, thus the extent of specialization within the period of compulsory schooling, private education, so a support for certain forms of private education, not least in the privatizing of certain functions in the state sector. The comprehensive school system, in other words, its abolishment, because if you remember, of course, um, Tony Blair's a spokesperson uh, talked about getting rid of the bog standard comprehensive. And in a sense, you can trace what has happened since then. I don't know when that was, 2002, 2003, or whatever. So it's, the consensus is based around its abolition. Teaching and research in higher education, league tables, uh, both internally as in comparisons made between schools, and of course they keep changing the goalposts as well. So the league tables that you looked at, perhaps as parents you looked at in order to choose schools in 2000, are now constructed differently than they were in 2000. So the comparison is a false comparison. And of course, and this I think is very important, the sense of external, external league tables to do with the programme for international student assessment, for example, PISA. I'm sure you've all heard of it, and forms of accountability. There is this consensus then. Educational reform over the last 40 years can be characterized as an extraordinary and continuous process of change, flux, and perturbation, in which successive governments have experimented with, intervened in, and changed the governance of the system. It has been quite extraordinary the number of Acts of Parliament to do with education, how things have changed from the old pre-1988 consensus. And it hasn't changed with a change of government. By changing the types of rewards and sanctions for teachers, the criteria for judging quality within the system, the compliance capacity of the teachers, and how they can judge themselves and each other, this has also contributed to 
changing the types of learning for students. And I would say to its detriment. Five key elements, five key elements have made up this uh, public sector educational transformation. The first is the devolution of budgets and other responsibilities to the school level. Though with the strengthening of managerial power within each school or cluster of schools, this has meant that it has rarely stretched, I would argue, though some people might disagree with me, beyond senior management levels. And that's the first thing, this devolution. Uh, devolution of budgets and other responsibilities to the school level. The second is the weakening of local government structures. The introduction of new types of schools, a variety of schools. There are something like 13 different types of schools in this country at secondary level, if you can believe it. And of course, this is part, if you like, of the educational agenda that is currently circulating. And the introduction to schools of entrepreneurial and competitive practices, not least between schools. So competition between schools drive up standards. It's a naive but very compelling approach towards education. Because what it does, of course, it actually distorts in the process of instituting the competitive process it actually distorts the process of education. And I'll say more about that later. Thirdly, the introdu introduction of more flexible approaches to teachers' conditions of service and the installation of new routes into teacher training. The fourth process, which is perhaps the most controversial because it's, it's taken place uh, without anyone really, really realizing what's going on the contracting out of services and programs which has the effect, which has had the effect of blurring the line between the public and private sectors. So if I talk about the public sector in education, I'm actually talking about schools and functions of schools which are now in part have been taken over by private companies. And the last of the processes is the processes of is the processes of centralization, which is perhaps a paradox almost. But if we think about it, so the retention of a national curriculum, albeit that large swathes of the sector have been allowed to opt out, free schools don't have to follow. I can't remember how many free schools there are, there are but there are certainly there's one in this local area. Uh, free schools can opt out of the national curriculum. The central funding and governance of certain types of schools and the creation with substantial powers of an inspection service, Ofsted, to act as enforcer of government policy, best represented as a standards and quality agenda. Those are the five, if you like, principles of change within the education, uh, within the education field over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. But the most important change has been about the devaluations and revaluations of the currency of education for schools, teachers, and students. And what I mean by that is that examinations are all that matter. And therefore, of course, the curriculum becomes a servant of the examination system. 
and therefore learning is in many ways distorted. The curriculum becomes narrow. What is taught is what can be examined. I mean, I was, you know, from the age of, uh, I don't know, 11 or something, through to about 23, I took uh, examinations at various points, sorry, at, at the end of every year, from 11 to 23. I mean, I am, if you like, a skill, I'm skilled at examinations. That doesn't necessarily make me well-educated. And I think that's a very important point that we need to think about. Now, the reason for it, of course, is because if you want to compare schools with schools, or if you want to compare universities with other universities, then you need some form of currency. And that currency, in the case of schools, is examination results or test results. And so the test result, the test culture, has come down not just <coughs> at the examination of 16-year-olds or 18-year-olds, it's come down to key stage one, key stage two, key stage three, which we've now abolished, and so on. Sorry, am I allowed to speak? Uh, it's best to, I think, we leave it to the discussion stage, if, if that's okay. I understand what you're saying, but no one gets an examination in life, right? So why should we have an examination? Yeah. We, we're going to in talk sense, about in a sense, that's my point, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what I'm saying is that the process of being educated is becoming distorted. Yeah. Okay. That's all right. So, what successive governments have done, they've driven through an assessment-led reform process with consequent knock-on effects on curriculum, governance, notions of quality, learning, and accountability. I mean, I was listening to the radio, Radio 4, in the morning uh, recently, and there, we, there turned up David Laws. Do you remember David Laws? He was actually the Minister for Education, no, Minister for Schools, I think he was, uh, under the coalition government um, for a brief period of time, and it was brief. <coughs> And he was saying, he now, he now heads up his own, uh, his own institute, Education Institute. And he was saying that if you create a large number of discrimination points in an examination system, in other words, if you create more and more points, one to ten or whatever, you are in, fact, you are in effect improving standards of learning within the system because you are stretching pupils and teachers beyond the accepted norms. Now, that was his argument. However, all that this does, of course, is reform the descriptive apparatus by which judgments are made about students in schools, i.e. examinations, through examinations. It doesn't do anything in terms of improving the learning of students. What this reform to the examination system also does is to widen the gap between what has been learnt and how that learning is recorded. Narrow the curriculum so as to give priority to those knowledge, attributes, skills and dispositions that can more easily be assessed in a formal examination. And this, I think, is the important point. You okay? And <laughs> Good evening. Um, and this, this, I think, is the important point. 
discriminate further against those pupils who are less adept at learning test and examination knowledge, although they may be very adept at learning. And that, I think, is the key point. In other words, this, this sense of examinations dividing people into those who are good at them and those who are poor at them. And that has consequential effects on curriculum, on learning, on education in general. Um, I don't know how much more time I've got. Uh, another couple of minutes. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm laughing because I've, as usual, what I've done is prepared much too much. Yeah. I usually get through a tenth of what I've done. Well, go on for another. Uh, go on for another. Okay. Well, what, what I want to do is just to suggest, I mean, that's, that's if you like, the background to what I'm saying. Uh, what, I, what I really want to suggest is a series of thoughts, a series of policy prescriptions about education uh, that I think can be usefully explored if one is serious about trying to understand what education is about and should be about. Um, so let me, just, let me just go through some of them. I hope they're worth it after this pause, but anyway. Um, A lot of this can come up in the, in the discussion. Yeah, so, I mean, I've, 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 I've prepared uh, much too much, but uh, it will... Yeah. Um... I, suppose, I suppose what I'm suggesting um, as one solution, one possible solution, which is the introduction of a baccalaureate. I'm, I'm also suggesting as part of that reform uh, the abolition of any testing up to the age of 16. But the baccalaureate seems to me to be a way of including vocational and academic concerns, of not discriminating between the two, which has been one of our uh, failures, if you like, in, in education, of offering breadth, comprehensiveness, cultural maturation, curriculum integration, allowing weak boundaries between subjects, between subject disciplines. Not if you like this, this, this uh, curriculum which looks as though there are small silos to encompass everything. And balancing the demands of specialization with a more rounded and general education. And it's entirely feasible, this is the point, to integrate academic and vocational elements into the system, thus reducing the long-standing division between the two. So let me just suggest a few, just a few ideas. Work towards reducing class sizes to 10 children at both primary and secondary levels to allow appropriate pedagogies and formative assessment processes <coughs> to be enacted in classrooms. Very expensive, very important. Reform teacher training so that teachers understand and can put into action appropriate pedagogies including formative assessment processes in their classrooms. Provide the resources for teachers to work with university education departments to develop appropriate content-based content pedagogies. In other words, 
The focus is on creating productive learning environments in schools, in universities, in colleges, and so forth. Construct authentic learning environments. Abolish all forms of summative assessment until 16 years of age. Introduce a baccalaureate with three levels of passing at 16 years of age, and introduce an advanced baccalaureate at 18 years of age. Create a single national examination board. Rework the national curriculum so that agreed and authentic forms of knowledge expressed as knowledge, skills, and dispositions are central to it. Require all children and young people between the ages of two and 19 to follow the national curriculum, to follow a rewritten national curriculum. Because if it is properly written, properly constructed, then if people don't follow it, they're being discriminated against. And I think that's a very important point. So regardless of whether you're in a private school, maintained school, faith-based school, free school, academy or whatever, they are required to follow the national curriculum. Use processes of light sampling of educational institutions within the National Education Service to provide holistic and authentic accounts of education. Reorganize, you won't be surprised at me saying this, reorganize Ofsted so it has two functions. One, a formative advisory body, the schools. Secondly, to collect and analyze data to provide holistic and authentic accounts of education within the system. Ofsted has been, um, well, Ofsted has contributed to what I have described earlier on as the failures that are now manifest in the education system. Withdraw from um, national, sorry, international assessment processes. And I mean that literally. Withdraw from PISA. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and of course there are other international assessment systems as well. We don't need to take part in them. They, they, they distort everything. I mean, look at the, the sudden rise of Vietnam. It's a distortion. I mean, I can, I can go into to why Vietnam is now fifth or sixth in most of these league tables. And it's not to do with the achievements of Vietnamese students. It's for selection. It's the way they select those who are going to take part in, in the study. Take private education out of the charity sector. Ch the uh, private education actually um, has uh, 18 tax, or it, it, can, it, can, uh, it can claim, uh, it doesn't have to pay tax for 18 reasons. Abolish all forms of discriminatory selection to schools, both covert and overt, and in particular abolish the remaining grammar schools. Abolish all forms of selection within schools, and that was part of the problem with the old comprehensive schools. Forms of streaming and setting, different timetables, different curricula, different types of teachers, different resources, etc., etc. Create one type of maintained school. This is not a boring, bog-standard school. Alistair Campbell should be ashamed of himself. And I'm sure that when he went back home, his wife wasn't very pleased with him either. Um, create one type of maintained school. And where possible, locate this school on one campus within an area. And I'll finish uh, 
by just saying something about parents, because parents are given false choices. And also some parents, of course, are advantaged in terms of the choices they make compared with other parents. So let's get rid of these false forms of choice given to parents. Let's give parents a genuine role in the education of their children in schools. There's much more of this. I think I've picked out a few highlights. I've run out of time, okay. as I always do. I'm sure and I'll, I'll, and I'll, leave, it, and I'll leave it there anyway. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much. Sure, uh, a lot, a lot to discuss. Uh, I'm now handing over to Francis, who will uh, look after the discussion uh, session. Okay, well, let's start with some questions. Right, what I'll try and do is get as many people in as possible. So you may not get a chance to ask a second question if people have got their hands up. You haven't uh, yet asked a first. You've asked a first, but I'll get you in again in a minute. Um, anyone else to start with? I will come back to you, don't worry. Um, I've got a question for both speakers, actually. I'm wondering, what, what's your vision? What is education for? Are we preparing people for the job market, or are we trying to get them to know themselves? Um, I don't know. I, I work in education. I've taught languages, so I feel, you know, what's the point? I mean, I think, I hope we can all agree in this room that the point of teaching languages is not just to pass exams, but to communicate afterwards. Um, yeah, I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that, thanks. Okay. I'll try and take them one at a time, and then if we keep the questions and the answers short, we'll get as many people in as possible. Yeah, thanks for the question. Yeah, okay. Thanks for the question. Um, I mean, my, my view of um, education, which I think is sorely lacking uh, at the present time, is, is, is a an holistic view. It's, it's allowing children it's introducing children to the conversation of mankind, which is not my phrase, it's, it's a philosopher's phrase. Um, and that, of course, is very general. That has to be broken down, worked out exactly what it is. What I think we're very good at, if you like, is, is introducing that conversation of mankind to a small number of people. Many of them go to universities such as UCL, Oxford, and Cambridge, and so on at the end of the process. We're not very good, and we write off. And we do it because we adopt, we write off the vast majority of children. And we do it because our agenda is one of a notion of fixed intelligence. In other words, we don't recognize the potentialities in all children. And the reason we don't do that is partly because it's not discussed, but it's also structural as well. Not as, not as overtly structural as in the old days. I mean, I don't know if you remember. The old days, grammar schools, technical schools, secondary model. Not in that overt sense, but we still do it. And somehow we have to break, break with that pattern. And it's, it, it's going to be extremely hard. And I think the way you break with that pattern is you develop a proper curriculum for all, and of course you develop appropriate learning experiences which come from that curriculum. I mean, I won't say any more, but I mean, because there's, there's a lot more that needs to be drawn out of that, but I think that's the, 
in, in general terms. That's the way. That's the way we should be going about it. Um, I, I, I would say all of it, everything. That's the job. You know, you've got to get them ready to communicate and to be good people and ethically minded and to work with others and to care for children and elderly and you know you've got that holistic but also you've got to teach them to be ready to pass an exam you've got to teach them to be able to walk into well because that is the nature of where society is it's about yeah if we're talking about changing society that's one discussion but if we're talking about education education has to be a combination of all of those things we would be in terms of preparing young people we've got i've got 1,000 students in my school and they've got to leave that, whether it's age 16 and they've got to leave it age 18 to go out into the world that exists today. I, I think yeah. it's very important. Just, there are things that people, you know, it's, it's not wrong to say that we need to help kids pass exams. It would be wrong to say that's the only thing and that's the most important thing. It's part of it. Teaching is really hard. It's really hard because you're dealing with academic academia, you're dealing with emotions, you're dealing with adolescents, you're dealing with teachers, you're dealing with relationships. It is a tough job, and so it should be. So therefore, you aim to do it all. Yeah, no, I've got lots of people who want to come in, and you've had two goals at the moment, so we'll try to get you back later, okay? Gentleman at the back. Yes, following on from that uh, first question, which I, I think is really important, <coughs> um, and thinking about the future and digital economy and so on, um, I think there's a sense in which uh, there's this huge cloud looming uh, on the horizon, uh, which some people are, uh, think is a doom-laden thing, and maybe some other people see it as something with a silver lining, I don't know, but I think that in general, people see this cloud as a natural thing, as you would see a rain cloud, rather than a man-made thing. And the whole purpose of examinations, and I think, you know, where are we going to question this? You know, if we're not allowed to question it uh, in, in meetings like this, uh, then where do we do it? I don't know. When to me, the, the whole compulsory education and that goes through all the different kinds of schools there are. There is one thing which is compulsory as far as all children are concerned, and that is examinations. And why I think that, the, that this is 10 years of state-sponsored child abuse is that the thing that, that children are compelled to do is to compete against one another. So it's not just schools competing against each other, but it's children competing against one another. So, so the education system, as it is, unquestionably, uh, unquestionably serves the, 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 the whole competitive capitalist system, basically. Okay, I mean, that, that was a comment, uh, and not a question, but comments are fine. And I'll take some comments one after the other. Uh, Terry, you had your hand up as well. Yes, it's really following on from the issue of the exams. I think there are two issues that, um, that haven't been covered today about exams. The first is the damaging effect that they're having on the mental health of young people. There was a study done, um, published in July of this year by the University of Manchester um, about suicide by young people. It goes up significantly in April, May and June. And what they call academic stress is one of the, um, I mean, not the top, 
um, uh, cause of suicide, but certainly very high up. But the other thing, colleagues, is just how stupid, just how utterly stupid our present GCSEs are. Do you know what they did this year? They reintroduced the requirement for people to memorise the formula for the area of a trapezium. <laughs> Hands up, who's used that since leaving school, the area of the trapezium? One person. Um, two, okay, right. And the, the interesting thing is, all you have to do on your phone, you don't even need to be able to spell trapezium. You just need to put area trap in, and the formula for the area of the trapezium comes up. So, you know, it's getting, it, the, the exam system is based on what people needed to do, I think, fairly, about 100 years ago. We live in a world where the skills that the exam system test are irrelevant, it's damaging people's health, and I'm really disappointed that you should um, think that it's appropriate to judge the success of your school on uh, its success in getting kids to do that. I really do, f I'm disappointed in that. I was going to go to my country in a minute, but I'll give you a chance to come back on that. Robin, do you want to come well, back? Well, I think, I don't think I could have been clearer that I've been pretty clear that there are a, vari a various number of ways in which I am judging the success of my school and the list that I put up as the things that show how we're doing has, yes, exam results in there as do destinations, as do the fact that the kids get on well, as the, do the fact that they collaborate well. All those things, I think it is too simplistic. It would be, I would be entirely wrong and it wouldn't be sit with me to say that exams is the only thing. And I think it's not right or proper that you quote me to saying that that's what I said was the most important part of my school, because I didn't. Um, what I said was that part the job of a school is to do all of these things. Um, personally, if the only thing that the school was doing well was getting great results and they were all unable to communicate, and I wouldn't be in education, I wouldn't be doing it. But I also know that I've got to give them every opportunity to make their way in the world. And the reality is that all of those things are things that you need. Okay, Dave, do you want to come Yeah, in? I mean, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for uh, someone who is at the chalk face. I mean, someone who is a head teacher of a, of a school. I mean, I sit in one of these ivory towers and I can say what I like, really, you know, and it's... Uh, I don't have to confront the practical implications of what I'm saying. But what I, but, but what I would say uh, is this, that it's not a question of being able to keep all the balls in the air at the same time, examination results, holistic views of, 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 of children, of education and so on, because the one is actually in direct contradiction with the other. In other words, an examination-based curriculum is a distortion of the curriculum that we should be implementing in our schools. And I think that's the big problem. With regards to um, uh, Alison Spielman, the Chief Inspector, um, Alison Spielman has this remarkable ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in her head at the same time. So she presents this nice liberal view, cooperative view, if you like, child-centered view of education, and yet she is the chief inspector of schools and is, in, and, and is uh, in, imposing on schools a rigid, nasty regime of quality assurance and judgment. And I mean, I can, I can, I can talk about offset. You know, Alice, having someone like Spielman in charge is much better than having someone like Chris Woodhead in charge, for those who can remember. Because, the, because there is some, some element of, of, of compassion 
and some understanding of what education is about. But even then, you can't reconcile those two. Uh, yes, I'm, uh, I have to say I was somewhat disappointed not to hear more about how you thought schools could do more to integrate into their communities. What we've heard so far is a lot of talk about education of children. In Hampshire, where I come from, it would seem to be the county council have treated the adult education section as an easy target to save money. So the only people now that they're doing anything for are children. The whole process of education seems to have stopped at the age of 16 or 18 and is not going on beyond that point. And I find that really disappointing and that none of you actually talked about education being a lifelong pursuit and not something that stops at 18. Okay. Yeah, just to be fair, we were focusing <laughs> on secondary education at yes. this stage. Okay. Sure. Uh, cool. Um, so, uh, uh, w one of my thoughts here, hearing both of you speak was that you uh, both agree that there needs to be some kind of curriculum, so some kind of uh, Im uh, imposed is a kind of judgmental word, but, but some kind of external uh, validation of what's important to learn and what's not important to learn. Um, and I'd just like to hear, hear you talk a bit more about that, both of you. So, so just a slight caveat is that I'm uh, an advocate of a movement called democratic education. Uh, and in democratic education, students have the right to choose what, where, when, how, and with whom they learn. Uh, there's a significant amount of self-directed education. I was speaking with the uh, guy who set up the self-managed learning college in <clears throat> Brighton yesterday. Um, and he said in, in the schools, uh, and in the school, um, students choose exactly what they study, how and when they want to. Uh, and every one of the students that has ever come to that school over the course of 18 years has gone on to college, having kind of identified their own course in life. Um, so I'm also curious to hear a little bit more about the kind of self-directed education elements within your school. Okay, so two questions there. There has to be rules of the game. It's called curriculum. Can you tell us more about that? And what about integration of schools into the community? They're not islands. Who'd like to start, David? Yeah, sure. Um, if I can just say that there was a huge section of my talk that was missed out, and a lot of it was to do with community schools. Uh, and by community, I, I, I mean both a geographical area, but also an extension across the life of the individual. Uh, and I think that's very important because I would argue that, in fact, what we've been pursuing is a huge number of discriminatory actions, discriminate against certain types of children because we haven't established, if you like, the community school. Let's not call it a comprehensive school or whatever because that offends some people. Let's call it a community school. Um, that is externally and internally as well. And that was the fault, I think, of the, of the old comprehensive schools. In terms, of the, in terms of the national curriculum, um, again, I didn't really have much, much of a chance to say, say about this, but I mean, you, I'm sure you gathered the gist of what I was trying to say, which is that yes, we should have a national curriculum. A national curriculum consists of knowledge attributes, skills, and dispositions that are part of this conversation mankind has had with, its, with itself over the last, whatever it is, 2,000 years, 3,000 years, or whatever. Uh, but what, what we're doing at the moment, we are denying children that by saying that some schools 
can actually teach what they want. So I was talking with um, the head teacher of a free school the other day. Well, I was debating with him in a meeting like this. And he suddenly came out with this notion of, well, we teach Latin. Now, that, that, that was, I mean, it was, it was difficult, first of all, for me to understand why he suddenly said, well, we teach Latin. Was it some sort of marker of a, you know, a, a different school? Different schools teach Latin. I mean, I, I couldn't really understand it in that sense. Secondly, there was no reason given for it. Because I think what we have to do when we are constructing our curriculum, we have to give good reasons for what we put in that curriculum. And everyone, it should be open to everyone in the country. So I could say a lot more about curriculum, but I think our focus should be on curriculum and learning, not on examinations and tests. Okay, Robin, do you want to say anything about curriculum? Because you've done some very innovative work in making yeah. curriculum multidisciplinary. Um, I think, I mean, curric what, go, what everybody should learn is really hard <laughs> to, to agree. I think that's the, the bottom line. That's a really, because we, I've talked about us and the various backgrounds of the students that we've got and what is culturally relevant to them and what should we should be supporting. And then you talk about, you know, what is British history. Yeah, let's take history I'm a, as a history teacher. You just, it's a virtual impossibility to, to agree what everybody should learn in history during a limited amount of time that you're studying it for three years. So I think my, my personal sense is if you, do, if you are prescriptive and come up with a list of what everybody should learn in, let's say, history, you are setting yourself up to fail and provide a huge amount of ammunition for other people. Go too far the other way and not have any kind of parameters, then, yeah, you could end up with all sorts of, you know, genuinely concerning content being taught in schools that have very far too much autonomy and absolutely no restrictions. So... I think you need a framework, you need expectations, you need a framework, you need some um, carefully organised guidance. I do think, and I know, you know, I actually do think that some of the language around what Ofsted want to be doing around how they frame curriculum is becoming more and more sophisticated. And I think I'm allowed, I think it is okay to say it's moving in the right direction. Um, so that's my first point. The second point is that self-directed learning is a fascinating area. We have three hours of it a, a week during the course, and there's an element of choice and direction. It's students, unless they are of a particular um, upbringing and they've had a certain amount of input, find it almost impossible. It is a fabulous concept. Uh, the reality is, uh, for me, in the schools that I've taught in, um, the reality is that it, it's, an, a, it's very, very hard. That's not to say you don't do it, but you have to do it again with a framework and a system and a process, and you need to upskill the kids, and it takes you, know, it, it takes you years and years. And, and unless, you are, unless you can create a school that is teaching students from the age of three all the way through to 18, and you're picking up kids as we are from 45 different primary schools aged 11, you know, to, to say, let's do self-directed learning all day long, I don't think it would work. But that's not to say you shouldn't contribute time and skill and energy to helping students become better at directing their own learning. <coughs> Absolutely. 
A um, couple more quick points, if I might. Just going back, I was asked to do a 15-minute presentation on the secondary school and what we've done. If you've got some questions about how we are a community school, I will happily talk about that before suggesting that we may not be a community school or we're not interested in lifelong learning. I'd ask that before you say you're disappointed that we've not done something, why don't you ask me what we've done and then decide whether you're disappointed. And That's then, telling you. And then the last point, the last point I'd make, and I think this is a general sense, uh, you, you've, you offered me sympathy for being on the coal face. I don't need any sympathy. Well, I wasn't patronising. No, 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 but I'm just, I think there is a general sense that people say, poor you guys working on the coal face. No, we get to do it. We get to, you know, the frustrations that you guys are all expressing here, we actually get to do something about it. I know Anthony wants to come in, but Evan, you had a question, didn't you? No, 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 no. no okay, I, I have lots of questions. But you you have lots of questions. Oh, we'll leave those for the time being. Yeah, yeah. Okay, over to you, Skip. Thank you. Um, um, there seemed to be a, a real focus on traditional exam uh, methodologies, kind of top down. Um, I'd be curious uh, what you think about an alternative approach uh, with an ipsative uh, assessment model. You might want to expand on that, people aren't familiar with. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, of course. Good, okay, over to you then. Yeah. I, I mean, of course, what, what I've been saying um, has been, if you like, an attack on, upon examination-based knowledge, mm -hmm. which I think distorts the whole process of learning. Um, yes, yes um, we shouldn't be actually comparing ourselves against each other. We should be comparing our experiences in life against our past experiences in life, against our current experiences in life, which is what ipsative assessment is. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a much more difficult and complicated activity for us to organize within schools, much more. Um, because uh, if you can actually have a unit, a person, a school, even a school system, such as the UK school system, it's quite easy to then say, well, this school system, this person, this school is not as good as the next school the next person, and so on. Um, it's much harder to actually develop appropriate pedagogies which, which allow learning to take place. It's much more difficult. But of course, the first, you've, you've pointed to the first, the first stage, if you like, in that process, which is ipsative assessment, very much so. Okay, is there any ladies who haven't yet spoken who'd like to come in? Are you a lady? You made mention of parents are giving false choices, and you also said that let's give parents a genuine role. Can you shed more light on that, please? About parents? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, it, it's, I'm not saying anything new here, but um, since, I suppose, 88, 1988, um, there has been a great stress on parents choosing schools. What I've been saying, what, I, what I'm suggesting is that actually it's a false sense of choice. Because for all sorts of reasons, some parents have more information, live in particular areas, and so forth, which allows them to make those choices. Whereas a lot of parents, the majority of parents aren't able to make those sorts of decisions. And what I was suggesting was that actually there are better ways of embracing parents as part of the school experience. 
In other words, they should be. It should be, if you like, a community school in which parents are welcome, welcome to come in. In many schools in this country, especially at secondary level, they are treated as outsiders. They are treated as people who are going to, uh, I don't know, attack the professionalism of the teacher. Push them, push them to one side. We don't want them. They shouldn't be. It should be part of it. Education should be a joint activity between teachers and parents. I mean, do you want to say anything about your school, about how you embrace parents to empower them to make decisions? Yeah. Um, oh, no, yeah. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think it is really tough for parents, particularly in um, areas where schools are massively, a huge variety of types of schools and, and quality of school, whatever we judge quality to be. I think it is really, it is really difficult. Um, whether you change the selection process or the, you know, whether it's lottery or selection or locality, different boroughs have completely different approaches. You can live one road away from one borough and one borough's got this approach and this borough's got that approach. It's really, really hard. Um, so I think or if, if, if the sort of strategy of how you deal with that challenge, it's a bit... Uh, optimistic, and but the, the basic point is that rather than trying to work out what the best system is, actually all energies and resource should just go in to try and make every school great. You know, get as many great teachers. It, you know, you, it's almost impossible to come up with a uh, um, a way and to, to solve that. What I think is quite an intractable problem. So actually, let's just focus on school improvement. Well, no, I, don't, I don't think it is an intractable problem. I think you can actually move to a system in which parental choice is not paramount. In other words, you, first of all, of course, you have to get rid of all forms of selection. In other words, get rid of grammar schools and so on. Yeah. And you get rid of, and you, you reduce the power of pri private schools in the system. But secondly, you have to get rid of this, this postcode lottery, all these sorts of things. You go to your local school. And I think that's an important point. And the second but point if a parent that, doesn't want their child to go to that school, doesn't, well, are you not taking away a parent's right uh, you in, are, that, you in are, that Yeah, sense? but you're taking away a parent's right to get a march on the next parent and the next child. You are introducing a competitive element into which school a parent sends their child to. And we have to move very smartly, I think, away from that scenario. Okay, I mean, we're gonna have, I think, in the future, Charity Selden, aren't we, whose mother uh, organized and ran a thing called Friends of the Voucher, which is something I guess would give Voucher. parents choice, but something you wouldn't agree with, I suspect. Uh. But anyhow. <laughs> Thank you for, for your talks, it's quite interesting. For UCL, um, instead of having the whole child, why not have the whole family? Because, no, yeah. you see some yeah. people are more affluent than other, and if you have a family group, so to speak, anything, that's married to the child, and the child come up to, say, well, 18 years old, between 18 and 26 years old, he or she can come to the UCL as a doctor, lawyer, teacher, preacher, in their own right, based on what is real life issue. We have Brexit coming up, and this is gonna cut things through. Now is a good chance to, to make everything one place, and make sure that it works at based on real life issue. Like, so what do you mean by excellent? Yeah. Well, coming into the school. Well, it's a school. It's a building. But people don't all have to go in there. We have the technology. It should, it should be a hub. It should be a hub of learning. Yes, a hub and of learning within a community. I mean, that's right. and and it shouldn't just be a secondary school or a primary school. 
It should be continuous. A life learning thing where everything teach there and knowing and sharing it that other people can see what you're doing in your part with the UCL. Okay, and I get, does anyone else want to say about the hub learning idea? Or should I go on? I mean, I think people understand that. Uh, Clive, and then you had your hand up. And then the lady back in here. Thanks. Um, I've been involved with Critical Thinking, which is an educational learning project, which is self-organising and self-directing. And it's, it's global. We interact with a lot of people overseas. And it seems to me that this is an interesting debate on secondary education. But as has been raised elsewhere, I think we have a much more fundamental issue to address. And that is that our compulsory education system was designed for a reason. It's evolved to slot people into the machine of a political economy and has very little to do with actually educating people. Um, and if you listen to John Taylor Gatto, uh, you Google him on the net, he'll tell you all about the history of education. But we have... At this moment in time, the people alive today have a unique opportunity to transform the way we live and learn, both as adults and children. And I think that um, as long as we attempt to develop a curriculum, everybody should learn this, everybody should learn that, it's self-evident. If you look at the self-organised learning uh, centre up in Newcastle and their experiences, anybody can learn. Collaborative learning is very easy. And I would, I would suggest that you go and talk to the people at University of Newcastle, because actually you can put a people, bunch of people in the room, leave with the question, and they will do it themselves. Teachers have a role, but it's asking questions rather than teaching. Okay, so we're into John Taylor Gatto, even Elish as well, I suppose. Are we supposed to be schooling society or de-schooling society? Do you want one of you want to take the lap? Well, I mean, the original, you mean the Illich notion of de-schooling society. I mean, I think, I think um, um, Illich has been uh, thoroughly misunderstood, in a sense. He didn't want to de-educate society. What he wanted to do was to get rid of schools, basically. But, but it depends on how you define the notion of a school. I mean, if you, if, you find, if you define the notion of a school or schools as sort of education hubs, and we understand our brief time on this earth, is actually a learning process above all else. Then, of course, that's, that's your starting point. That's, where you go to, that's what you go towards. You don't see this as a process where you have to go to school, you know, from five to whatever it is, 18 or something, 16. Everyone hates school, of course, especially when you get to 12, 13. There's something fundamentally wrong there, isn't there? You know, this, this is about our relationship with our environment, human beings' relationship with their environments. Okay, we've got one. gentleman here and this lady there. I will try to get back to you honestly, but I've got so many people who haven't spoken yet. I just want to ask a fairly simple question. Um, they, we, we talk about education uh, systems of various kinds. What one would like to know is if there is an education system in somewhere on this planet, which we could have a look at and copy, and say, that works, let's have that. Because you can talk as long as we like, but unless you see a practical demonstration of a system that actually works and produces good results. There's no perfect, there's no perfect education system. Yeah. 
Um, but if you look at the Finnish model, for example, it's much closer to, to, to what I've been talking about than, for example, uh, I don't know, the Singaporean model. What's, what's good about it? I mean, why does it work? Community schools. Yeah. Because Finland has got a non-selective You don't have barriers education. between classrooms. You have a fairly fluid, flexible curriculum. Um, and uh, it seems to work for children. Interesting, from our point of view, when, when the research for our school was done, Finland yeah. was a huge amount looking at school building, school design, school yeah. curriculum timetables. Finland is a very good example. I, I mean, I've got some colleagues who have visited recently. I think there is an interesting... It will be interesting to see where Finland is in 10 years because they have had a huge refugee influx in the last three or four years. And... Um, Every school ha is a reflection, create, builds its own society, but is also a reflection of its society. And it's, you know, you've got to strike a balance between the two. And you have to be able to adapt what you're teaching and how you're teaching to who you're teaching. And if who you're teaching is changing with different needs and challenges and uh, cultural references and familial backgrounds, then unless you're able to change and support it and evolve, uh, you'll struggle. So I, I'm not saying Finland won't be okay, but I think it, it's got an interesting journey in the next five years, ten years. But can I just ask, they don't have exams. So, I mean, is that a, a, the big distinguishing factor? Well, they, 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 no, no, they, they have a final exam. Yeah, final exam. Yeah, 16, but, but nothing between no. um, um, two and 16. Yeah. And there are no inspectors. And there are no, inspectors. No, that's not quite true. There are, there are sorts of inspectors, but they're not the sort of inspectors that we understand. They're not Ofsted-type inspectors. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I think the sort of Finnish utopia is quite interesting, and maybe we ought to organise some follow-up webinars yeah. with yeah. Finland on Finland. that, because I think it would yeah. be really good to do. You... I was reminded of... It's a long time since I read the kind of philosophy of education stuff. So your, your, your mention of this tripartite distinction into knowledge, skills, and dispositions, David, I can see in the things which Robin talked about what might be regarded as knowledge and skills. I'm a bit hazy about what are dispositions. Yeah. I just don't... Yeah. I, I'm just... They're kind of brag back for me, so I'd be really grateful if both of you could identify what you consider to be dispositions in this um, yeah, I mean, I don't want aims. to um, establish too strong boundaries between those three. That's the first point I want to make. Um, but the sort of philosophical arguments against strong boundaries uh, can be made, but not really, I don't think there's time here. But, but um, I mean, your point about is really about dispositions, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, a disposition would be, for example, uh, the, way we, um, the way we behave towards other human beings. That would be a disposition. A disposition would be a lifelong uh, attachment to the notion of learning. There are all sorts of dispositions. Even if we are dealing in knowledge, knowledge in, a, in, in, in quite a strong sense, we are still dealing with dispositions to knowledge. People have dispositions. And they need to be developed. They learn them. They need to be developed. And of course, in many cases, because of the, the way the system is structured, um, we learn the wrong dispositions. But I think they're a very important part of, of what schools should be about. Okay. You... Can, I, can I come oh, in on that? Sorry. I think that's a great question. Um, when, when we started the school, we, 
when we the first curriculum model we used was something called the International Middle Years Curriculum, which is a, a curriculum structure that is similar to what we've ended up at, and we used it as a best fit at the time because there was quite a lot else to do when starting a school from scratch. Um, and they talked a lot about dispositions and that they wanted us to assess the kids' dispositions, and we really tried, and then we gave up because it was we weren't quite sure what they meant. Um, we've kind of moved into, is it character? Is it elements of character education? I think there is a risk of too much edu-speak around dispositions from our point of view, but I think there is a key aspect around you know, knowledge and skills you can define. Um, uh, we talk about, we've talked about understanding as well, but I think that can be a bit waffly. I think, for me, it's about, it's about elements of character. Would, would, be, would be my sort of take yeah, on, I mean, take on that. The notion of character is, I mean, I went to a private school and they talked about character all the time. And character was developed through cold showers and going on early morning runs. I mean, character is a dangerous word, it really is. And I know that this present government is talking about character education. I mean, I'm personally much happier with the notion of dispositional education or dispositions which I think can be defined. Okay. Or understood. I'll just stand so I can see you both. Um, thank you for these two perspectives here. I'm interested in the two roles that I'm seeing in terms of this. Um, so we have the role of the teacher and the school, and we have maybe the role of, of the state, of the political power, and I'd be really interested to hear your views on what the other could do. So, so for example, what would you like to see the state, the political power do as someone in the school and, and, and you know, doing the work that you're doing and what do you think of the role of the teacher? Um, I guess I'll qualify that. So as someone born 1988, you know, I went into a school system that I felt um, was, you know, very about the exam kind of dehumanising and things like this. And, you know, I did well in the exams, but I know other people that didn't and it, you know, it's, it kind of tears things. My impression of everything that education was was the teachers um, they were they were what was important um, that's why I'm actually in part of the founding team on the Charter College of Teaching because I think you know you guys are brilliant. teachers having uh, you know a, a sense of their own development a sense of having that control I, th I think that's really important so I'd be really interested in your views of the other role um, from what you've been presenting on so what's the role of the state, and I guess because you've mentioned it in your speech today, with the local state as well? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we have to think about teachers um, because they are, if you like, or the relationships that are established between teachers and students are the key relationships, the key learning relationships. Um, so yes, uh, very much so. I think what's happened is that um, teacher training has been reformed over the last 15 years, something like that. Um, it's become very much a question of the teacher adopting a management role within the teacher training curriculum. And I would want to also reform thoroughly the teacher training curriculum. Um, for example, uh, any, any notion of philosophy, philosophy of education, being discussed on a teacher training course is now, is now a joke. It doesn't happen. You know, it's, it's about how you control 3B. That's what you learn as a teacher. Sorry, as, a, as when you're being trained as a teacher. Um, so I think a great deal has been lost 
Um, and, and I know, I know the difficulties. I know, I know the reason for it. It's, it's to do with this um, um, Michael Gove notion and a few other politicians' notion of teaching is a practical activity. And therefore, you learn in the practice itself. In other words, it's not a reflective activity. Um, we get rid of all that. Reflective teachers are dangerous. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, that, that was the sort of feeling that came out of a lot of discourse in the 1990s and the 2000s. Um, and, I, and I think, uh, yes, we need to develop dangerous teachers. We need to allow them to be dangerous. That's what education is about. Yeah, I think I think a lot of I think a lot of a lot of what is going on that I've heard in uh, in, in in your school um, sounds sounds wonderful. Uh, sounds really so. Do you want to as though there is the development of self-reflective teachers, and I know one or two of them. I mean, it's, so do you want to amplify on that? Robert? Yeah, I, th I mean, so I liked your question about what what else or more could the state do to help the other my my side, as it were. In it. I think. There's a big shift in the Charter College teaching is a really good example of that, of teachers wanting to and being able to take more and more ownership of their own development. So training not done to them, but by them, and they choose it. And, and we talk a lot at our school that the best teachers are the ones that are truly reflective and know their own areas of strength. But like in any job, you know, like it doesn't any any profession, you want people working for you in an organisation who know what they're great at and know what they've got to improve at, and you give them every resource and opportunity to do that. And if they don't know it, then you need to make sure they know. You know, then you can be a bit more directive. But I think the teaching profession in the in the kind of world of I do agree that teacher training is in a bit of a pickle. There are about 55,000 different routes into teaching now. So the, the kind of let's, let's persuade more people to go into teaching was a great idea. But anyone who now wants to go into teaching is absolutely bemused by how they could get there. They don't know if they'll get paid, whether they won't get paid, whether they, they'll, they'll, they'll do it in a day or they'll do it in three years. They just, it's really confusing. Um, I think there is some, still some fabulous training going on in many institutions. PGCE, for me, is still the best route into teaching, personally. Um, but then you also, if you want to get people who are in their late 20s into teaching, they can't afford to take two years out, then actually let's be pragmatic about it and find better ways and make schools. So I think teach, teacher training weighs in is in, a bit, is, is in a bit of a pickle, even though the, the idea is let's get more people in. I think the bottom line is, the best thing you can do is get the best people to be teachers, and then everything will be all right. Okay, we've got about 10 minutes or so, 10 to 15 minutes to go. We've got four people with their hands up. Uh, and, 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 if we get, and the co-chairman. And the co-chairman who probably <laughs> has about 10 questions. Um, in order to get you all in, I won't ask you to ask a question and answer a question and answer. I'll get all four of you to make your point. And then maybe you can sum up on those four points and then Evan can come in with his points as well. And I've included you in the four, you'll be pleased to know. Um, uh, yeah. Hello. Um, just in case you wondered, um, basically, I don't think the education system is a complete failure, as people actually, they actually do get results out of it. Um, I'm just going to be snappy because we, don't have, we have a lack of time, um, but <coughs> don't you just propose that people should just use better study methods instead of actually completely reforming the whole thing? 
Okay, and then the gentleman at the end, and then we'll bring you all back. It's a good exercise for me, this. Uh, I just wanted to reflect on a couple of things that came out, and, and starting off with Evan's o opening point about the, the intention to transform rather than reform, which seemed a really important thing. And I just wanted, to, the second thought that I had was really picking up this distinction between schooling and education. I have a sense, because of an interest in etymology, that education is how you lead individuals out of themselves. And so it seems to me, if the focus is on secondary education, and let's assume that young people get there by the time they're <coughs> 11, 12, thereabouts, then the first task is, seems to me, and I'd like to comment on this, because I think you've both highlighted some incredible challenges, is how you develop an awareness and, under, and an understanding of self as the foundation, and related to that, just to pick up on another thread that was going, how you then build from that onto an understanding of society and what's going on around them. That seems to me the, and, and I don't belittle how incredibly difficult those challenges are, but if we don't start with self and a sense of the social context that's around us, all this stuff about curriculum exams and all that other stuff falls by the wayside if we're going to transform things. Okay, so there, those points, self-disposition and environment, uh, reform what we can rather than try to make the, the really big changes, and how do we really make the changes with government? How do we influence it? So if you want to take those points up, and I'll hand back to you, Evan, after that. So go ahead. Do you want to start, David? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that, that's a really interesting question that you've, you've posed. Um, it's about the self. And of course, as you, as a philosopher, I'm sure you, you're aware of the fact that the self is being, has been defined in a huge number of ways. Um, certainly, I would, I would argue that the sorts of selves that are being developed in our current system um, actually conform much more to an individualistic self-absorbed notion of the relationship between us and our environments. I think we're actually developing that. Um, I mean, I briefly mentioned uh, early on um, this, this, this key relationship. I mean, I said that dispositions were important. The development of dispositions were important. Some of those dispositions are about our relationship with the environment. And of course, one can understand the self as being in this continuous learning process with the environment, or one can understand the self as being in competition with other people. And I think that's a function of whether it becomes one or the other is to some extent a function of the experiences that we give to children, and of course, later on. That doesn't really answer your question because I think your question is so profound that it might take us, um, I don't know, a few more days, I think, to answer it. But um, I'll, I'll come in on, I, I agree, it is it was a really hard question, actually. Um, but I think my, the more I teach in secondary schools and I'm now, you know, a dad who's got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and I see the kids arriving aged 11 and I go to the primary schools, 
by the time you get to five, you know, you, you, there'll, be tweak, there'll be changes, you'll accelerate, they'll do better at this, they'll become more confident, they'll become... But by the time you get to four or five, that so much is formed, the core is there, and um, really interestingly was at a talk at, oh, awfully I've forgotten her name, which doesn't help, but the Shadow Education Secretary, Angela Rayner, no, I didn't forget her name, she was asked, if you were given 50 million or you know, a huge amount of money to, to do what you did and you were the, your, your first day, what would you do? She said, early years, boom, that was it. She said, nothing else, I'd just do early years. And I think there's a, I think there's a lot in that. A very quick question for us. First of all, Angela Rayner has no qualifications at all. She's done not too bad Absolutely. with no qualifications. Uh, the question I'm going to ask, I gave a talk at uh, Twickenham Academy about two years ago, which is a similar school to yours in the sense it had a massive investment in infrastructure, used a very clever teaching systems, lots of open teaching spaces. When I went there, uh, there's 70 on the staff. That term, 29 were leaving because of the stresses involved in them delivering an incredible curriculum, if you like, a bit like the sort you say you're doing. Do, I mean, it is, I'm talking about stress on students, it's incredible stress on the teachers as well. I just wonder what the teacher turnover in your place might be. Quite low, I mean, sort of... I need you to say that. <laughs> um, half the national average for yeah, well, the schools. Yeah. Um, <coughs> we've got the same SLT and uh, senior middle leadership team that we had when we opened. Yeah. And, and I think that comes down to the, you know, the way the sponsor is supported. We had a very experienced principal who'd done something similar before. I think we're a good leadership team. But there's a lot of pragmatism in there. There's things that we didn't push, we slowed down on, and you choose the right people. We didn't, I don't know with Twickenham whether they were a brand new school. Not completely brand new. I think, no, so I think if you are taking over a school that exists and a staff body that exists and you try to transform, reform, whatever you do, that is really hard for the staff there who have been working for 15 years. And we are, I am hands up saying, we wouldn't have got to where we've got to if I'd taken over a staff of 80 that had been doing that for... We started from scratch. We, we got to pick who we wanted. Yeah, OK. OK, well, I'll just very quickly sum up, uh, probably do it very badly, but this is obviously the start of the conversation uh, in terms of understanding where we really are with our present examination system. Is it really capable of delivering the stuff we want? Or is it really so badly affected by the presence, for example, of exams, uh, is corrupted by the presence of exams, that there's no hope for it, that we have to work to come up with much more sensitive, much less intrusive examination systems, such as those they have in Finland, for example. So there's a big job to do there, a lot of exchange of information, and we will continue to do that. We've got some big speakers lined up, uh, as we have today. I think uh, Santony Selden is going to come and talk in this area. We're going to try and get Ken Robertson to come and talk in this area. We're getting Professor Mitra from Newcastle to come and talk in this area. He's a bloke who's pardoned this, uh, this uh, uh, self-organised uh, learning. He's going to come and talk in July. There's a huge amount to do. Uh, a free task briefly asked to understand their present system, where it really is, what are its fundamental problems. Two, and if we consider they are pretty fundamental, we have to devise and, uh, and articulate a new system, which is understandable by everyone, that everyone will want to say, my goodness, I will tick that box. 
And we've got to do that. If we don't do that, it's no, you just keep talking, criticising the present system. We have to do that. That's what I don't think Sir Ken has failed to do. You have to articulate a new system of education. And I see that as a transformation rather than a reformation. And finally, what we have to do, there's no point all this hot air going up talking about this if it doesn't produce traction. And what we want to do, the third thing we have to do, is to get any good new thinking coming out of this activity in front of those people that matter. It may be a groundswell of movement. I don't know. I think it is more. I think there's a mood in parents and probably in pupils that this isn't good. We can do better than that. Uh, and we may have to present to government. But my goodness, those ideas, the educational establishment is a very, very tough nut to crack. But we will work on that for sure. So please uh, come along. This is going to be an ongoing series of events and we want to make them invigorating and what we want more, we, what we want to do is make them game-changing. I believe that's absolutely critical. And the other final question before Clive comes in, big question, do we need politicians in education? Should we get rid of politicians in education? I think that is a big question. And the elephant in the room, of course, is private education. But that we won't come on to that. And of course, we will have a session and we'll get someone from Finland, we'll do our best to get someone from Finland to come and talk about how they do it so fantastically well in Finland. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, two fantastic speakers. I think they've been very good. And in a sense, I think uh, uh, Robin has been very brave because I know there's a lot of people who are quite anti our present system. But I think he's doing a fantastic job within the present system. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And David has some great ideas about how we should move forward. So thank you. Thank my speakers very much. Thanks, Evan, for chairing it and, uh, you know, getting it going. And the most important thing always is to thank you because your questions were great. Yes, and I always work on meetings on the basis, hate, I hope you don't mind me saying this, the audience is as, as important as the speakers. Absolutely. And you have to have a balance between them, a discussion and a dialogue. And you did that really well. So if you want to applaud yourself, you can. Yeah. <laughs>